Psalm 67, give ear to the word of God. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's pray and ask God uh, to teach us his word uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, as always, that uh, you give it to us as a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, that by the scriptures we may have hope, and it's by your scriptures we know the way of salvation uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, your Son. And we ask once again that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, this psalm, Psalm 67, has rightly been called by a number of commentators. They've called it a missionary psalm, and so I've borrowed that as our title for the sermon this morning. And maybe when I was reading it, that didn't jump off the page at you. Maybe when I just said that, you thought a missionary psalm. Why is this psalm, how is this psalm a missionary psalm? Well, that's, missions is what the psalmist has in view. The message of God's salvation going out to all the ends of the earth in verse 2 is what the psalmist has in mind, he wants all the earth to come to fear the Lord and the way of salvation to be found by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the word missions is not in the text, obviously. It doesn't say the word itself. But missions is, a, is really what's at the heart of this psalm and the prayer that is in this psalm. If you ever needed a biblical argument for praying for world missions or for participating in them, participating in praying for the spread of the gospel of Christ throughout all the nations... <laughs> You can get that not only in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, but you can also look at a psalm like this one, for missions is really at the heart of this psalm. Now, the first thing you might notice in the psalm in verse 1 is that we are taught to pray for and really sing for. Remember, it's a song. We're taught here to pray and to sing for the blessing of our God. How many of you, when you pray, pray for God to bless your family, to bless your church, to bless someone you know? Sometimes we use those terms in kind of vague ways. We don't really specify how it is we want God uh, to bless us. But look at verse 1. The psalmist says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. They think the word Selah means it's a note to pause and to give consideration to what you just uh, read and sang and prayed. Now you might, when I was reading verse 1, maybe you thought to yourself, that sure sounds familiar. That rings a bell with something else in Scripture, and that's probably the, uh, the what's called the Aaronic blessing or benediction found in Numbers chapter 6. That is going to be our benediction at the end of the service this morning. In Numbers 6, verses 22 to 27, uh, the writer says this, the, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. 
The benediction is, in a, in a sense, according to God's word here, a putting upon uh, us of the name of God, speaking the name of God upon the people of God, and what's the result? It's, it's, it's God blessing his people. That's why we use that well-known passage for a benediction so often. Now see here how the, the psalmist, in doing that, in borrowing language from, from Numbers chapter 6, and that blessing that God commanded Aaron and his sons to give to the people, Notice how God is teaching us here to pray according to his will and according to his word. He takes the blessing of God given in number six and really turns it into a prayer, a request. Here in Psalm 67, makes it a request at the throne of grace. Now, you know what the Bible says, if you pray according to the will of God, we know that God hears us. And if we know God hears us, we know we have the things that we have requested of him. That's always a good practice. Take God's own promises in his word and pray according to those promises. You can be sure that God is well pleased to answer when we do that. Notice notice what's the first thing, before even the prayer for blessing, what's the first thing that the psalmist actually asks for and in doing so teaches us to ask for? He tells us to seek God's mercy or grace. He says, God, may God be gracious to us and bless us. We have to seek God's mercy and grace first. We must always have God's mercy first if we are to have his blessing. On our own, none of us have the right to ask God for blessing. Do you know that? None of us, and why is that? None of us deserve God's blessing. In the smallest way, we must have God's grace and mercy in Christ before we can have his blessing. The prayer of the true Christian must always be that of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, you might know the story. There was a tax collector and a Pharisee in the, in the synagogue. And the one kind of gave God a litany of his own qualifications. Oh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not even like this, fair, this tax collector over here. He's, he's reciting his own qualifications to God, which is a silly and foolish thing, an unbelieving thing, really, to do. And then there's a the tax collector. And, you know, sometimes... We, you know, we don't have the white hats and the black hats, right? When we read the scriptures. Now, in the first century, when Jesus was saying these things, if he were to say Pharisee, you wouldn't have thought bad guy. You would have thought white hat. He's the good guy. He's the religious, he's the pastor, so to speak. He's the religious professional. If anybody knows God, it's the Pharisee, right? And if, in our day, this is the same as it was, as always been. If I say tax collector, white hat or black hat? If you if you pay taxes, it's a black hat. No no offense if you happen to be working for the IRS. But I had a good friend that used to work for the IRS, and we still had fellowship with him. But um, yeah, but they were the bad guys, right? Because they take your money, right? Well, what did that tax collector say? He he stood at a distance, far off. It says, wouldn't even look up to heaven, beat his breast, and said, "God be merciful to me, a sinner." That's the prayer of the Christian. That should be your prayer. If you're a believer, that is always going to be your prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, remember that Jesus said it was that man, the tax collector, who approached God in humility and asked God for mercy for his sins. He's the one that went home, according to Jesus. He went home justified, not the self-righteous Pharisee. It's the man who approached God on the basis of his mercy in Christ that went home justified before a holy God. And so I ask uh, about that text is, how are you approaching God this morning? How are you approaching the throne of God's 
grace this morning? Are you approaching God on the basis of your own goodness and self-righteousness? Do you say, well, of course, I'm a good person, so God must reward me, and I can therefore seek God's blessing? Or are you approaching God by his mercy, being justified by God through Jesus Christ, by his mercy alone? Well, what what does it mean to have God's blessing? What does it mean to have and ask for God's blessing? Sometimes we use that word in some strange ways. And if someone sneezes, and what do you say? Bless you. What does that even mean? And why why are people blessed when they sneeze? I have no idea. You'll have to you'll have to Google that. Yeah, the hard stuff. Yeah, I don't know why that is. You know, to ask for God's blessing can involve a lot of different things. It can involve material things, the things that we need for our daily lives. We are taught in the Lord's Prayer, which we just prayed a little while ago. We are taught to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Not not a month's supply, not a year's supply ahead of time. Give us this day enough for this day, our daily bread, our daily sustenance. We're taught to pray that way. And so there's nothing unspiritual about asking God to bless you financially, depending how you ask and why you ask. For God to, to meet your needs, to prosper the works of your hands, according to his Wisdom in his will. God's blessing, though, has to be more than that. God's blessing is not just the things of this world. One can have all of the good things of this life and be entirely devoid of God's blessing. That's the case with many people. They seem to have it all, but they really have nothing because they don't have God's blessing. They don't have peace with God. Likewise, one can have almost none of the, bless- none of the things of this world and yet ha- have God's blessing. You can have the blessing of God without having much of the good things of this life. Proverbs fifteen sixteen says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better to have little, but have the fear of the Lord with it than have all the treasure in the world but not have God. And asking further in this uh, verse 1, this prayer, to make, make his face to shine upon us. We pray for God to make his face to shine upon us. That really makes all the difference, doesn't it? Maybe if you're not familiar with these texts, it sounds like a strange thing to ask God to do. But think about this. When, you, you know, when you're a kid, or really any time, when, when you're mad at somebody, I don't know about you, but I do this a lot. If you know me, you've probably, ex- hopefully you haven't experienced this much. But you know, when you're mad at somebody, what do you not do? Usually. Now, some people do it the opposite way. Some people, when they get mad at you, they stare a hole through you. You know, A lot of us, we, we, we look away. We kind of avoid. Or if you know somebody's mad at you, what do you do? You kind of look away. You don't want to make eye contact kind of thing. Well, it's the same kind of thing as that. To have God's face shine upon you is the opposite of that. It's to have God's approval, to know that you are in the love of God and have his blessing and know his forgiveness in Jesus Christ. To have God's face Shining upon you makes all the difference in the world. You know, a believer in Christ can bear anything in this life, just like Job did, as Rob mentioned earlier in the service. A believer can endure anything in this life as long as he or she knows that they have the the face of God shining upon them. If you have peace with God and have the assurance of his love and forgiveness of your sins in Christ, uh, that is a greater treasure than all the things that the worldly man can ever know. No matter what comes your way, if you have the face of God shining upon you, if you have the blessing of his forgiveness and the assurance of his love for you, you can do anything. You can handle anything. And that's what the, what the psalmist prays for here in this text and what he, what he helps us to actually pray for 
and even sing about in this psalm. Well, the second thing we see in this psalm is very closely related to the first thing. It's not just a prayer for God's blessing. It's a prayer really for missions. It's a prayer for missions. For what, Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. And He asked God to be gracious to us and bless us and to make his face to shine upon us. But what's the reason for it? He gives us the reason for it in verse 2. And if you look at verse 2, you'll notice he has other people in mind. You know, we often can pray wrongly. Sometimes we, sometimes we have, we have not because we ask not. Sometimes we have not, not because we don't ask, but because we really ask selfishly. We just want what we want for our own comfort. Nothing wrong with comforts in this life and blessings, but the psalmist here shows us he has the blessings of others in mind as the effect of the blessing of God upon his church. Look at verse two. He says here in verse two, he gives us the intended purpose of that blessing. He says that it is, quote, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Why does the psalmist want God's blessing? This is it. He wants God to bless his church. Why? That your way may be known on earth and your saving power or your salvation might be known among all the nations. In other words, this request for God's blessing is not self-centered. It's not self Focused. It's not really selfish at all. It has its goal, and the goal of this prayer for blessing is that through this blessing of God upon the church, God's ways and God's salvation might be made known among all the nations. That's the purpose of this request for blessing. It's a request that we want to see. We want others to see that it's good indeed to serve the Lord. Remember, in, uh, Rob didn't mention the whole thing, but in the book of Job, uh, if you remember when, when, when it was suggested to, to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. And be careful when God volunteers you for things, right? You, you know, you, there's no one like him who, who serves God. I'm paraphrasing. You know, he's a righteous man who does what's right and, and follows the Lord. Uh, and, and what did Satan say? Do you remember? Does Job serve the Lord for nothing? Here's where the test comes in, right? Does, does, he, does he not serve you for a reason? I mean, look at the guy. He's rich. Of course he serves you. And what does he do? He takes all of his stuff away. And what does Job not do? He doesn't curse God. He blesses God's name. And so, you know, the, the reason for this blessing, the reason for this request of blessing is that others might see that it is good to serve the Lord, that God is good. As Psalm thirty-three twelve puts it, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen, as his heritage. The nation that whose God is the Lord is blessed indeed. We used to know that a lot more in our country than we seem to do now. Where, where other gods, false gods, are worshipped and served, you see misery in this life. Where God is lifted up and the fear of God is prominent in a land, you see blessing and you see good things because it's good to serve the Lord. You know, our life of experiencing the blessings of God as believers and as the church, it's to be a testimony to the world around us. As David says in Psalm 34, 8, David writes, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That, that should be the message of our lives in a lot of ways, not just our lips, but also in how we live in experiencing God's blessings and peace. And so I say, can others see your life if they looked at your life, and they do look at our lives, right? 
Do others see your life and would they conclude from that that it really is good to serve the Lord? Or do we make it seem like a dreadful burden? Oh, we, we, that we might seek his blessing and show it to be a blessing and not a burden to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in our age. Now, the worldly man may have, again, may have everything the world has to offer. But the, the richest man in the world, you know, he mentioned Bill Gates early in the service. I don't want to pick on him. Nothing wrong with having money. But the richest man on earth who doesn't know the Lord should be jealous of every single one of you that knows Christ. He should, it should eat at his bones that you have something he does not have. That you wouldn't trade places with him for all the money that he has or all the money in the, in the world. He should be envious and jealous at the sight of a godly man enjoying the blessings of God, even if he doesn't have much of the things of this world. The psalmist request here, it kind of reminds me of, of Paul's words in Romans chapter 11. In Romans eleven thirteen to 15, Paul writes this. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. In, in this letter, he's writing to the Christians in Rome. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, you know, non-Jews, inasmuch as, uh, then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, the gospel going out to all nations, uh, what, will the, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? You know, Paul had a great burden for the salvation of his countrymen, his kinsmen according to the flesh, Romans 9.3, the Israelites. And in Romans 10.1, he says that it was his heart's desire and prayer to God for them that they might be saved. And Paul, Paul prayed for his fellow Jews. He prayed for them. He, he desired their salvation above all things. He even says if he could trade places and you know tra- trade in his soul, so to speak, that they might be saved, he would have been willing to do that. So what did, what did Paul do? Now, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, Romans 11.13. And even though he preached, now did Paul preach to Jews and Gentiles? Yes, he did. Paul preached, he said in Romans 1.16, the gospel itself was for the Jew first and also for the Greek or the Gentile. He preached to both, but his main ministry was to the Gentiles. The main, the main peoples that, that God granted success in his gospel preaching to what were the Gentiles. Everywhere Paul went, churches were planted and believers, people were converted to faith in Christ, and so his primary mission field was to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Now, in other words, the pagans. Paul went among the pagans, people who worshipped false gods, who, who practiced idolatry of all kinds. He preached the gospel, and God saved many people through using Paul's preaching of his gospel. So what did Paul do? Did Paul say, well, I guess I'm never going to see fruit among my own countrymen? No, what he did was he said, you know what, if God chose me to be the apostle of the Gentiles... I'm going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm going to magnify my ministry among them, if nothing else, to make them jealous. To make my own fellow countrymen say, what do they have that we don't have? Same kind of of thing. He magnified his ministry among the Gentiles in order to make his fellow Jews jealous of the gospel and save some of them by drawing them by God's grace to faith. That's kind of something like what the psalmist teaches us to do here in Psalm 67. We are to pray that God might bless and prosper us as his people, as his church. And what's the goal? Not just that we might have nice things and be comforted, but that others may see it and seek the Lord and his salvation that's to be found 
in Christ. And the third thing that brings us to is not just a prayer for blessing or a prayer for missions, but also a prayer for praise. A prayer for praise. Here in the psalm, uh, the psalmist tells us is that there's an even greater goal than missions in mind. Do you know there's a greater thing, a more important thing than evangelism and missions? As important as those things are, there's a bigger priority here in the psalm, and that priority and that prayer is God's praise. Even greater, even more important than the spread of the gospel throughout all the ends of the earth, as important as that is, the psalmist has God's praise in view here. That is the main thing in the psalm. All of these things, the prayer for blessing, the prayer for God's salvation to go to the ends of the earth, all of that is for the express purpose that God might be praised. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let all the pe- or let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It's the same exact verse, same exact words in verses 3 and verse 5. And what do we say if God repeats something in his word? It must be awfully important. And those two phrases bookend verse 4. It's like those two things point your attention and draw your eyes to verse 4, where he says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let them praise God. The desire that God might be praised is really the main request and desire of this psalm. It's the real ultimate motivation and desire and reason for everything he writes in Psalm 67. And that, that's, that should be instructive to us. The glory and praise of God must be central in everything we do. Our experience of God's blessing, as good as that is, is not to be the central thing in our prayers, in our worship, in our desires. Even evangelism and missions, as important as those things are, they are not the thing. They're a means to the end, which is the real main thing. The Great Commission is still the church's marching orders. You know, the God... Christ himself commands us as his church to do what? To go and make disciples of all the nations. That is still our main marching orders. But even despite all that, God's glory and God's praise comes first. And in fact, those things serve that end. The Great Commission is to serve the end that God might be praised. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, this is a good verse to have memorized if you're in the practice of doing that. If you're not in the practice of doing that, I recommend it to you. It keeps you remembering things that God says. But 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do. And if whatever it is you're doing can't be done to God's glory, then don't do it. It must be something we shouldn't be doing. Our goal in whatever we do as believers is to do all to the glory of God. In his book on missions uh, called Let the Nations Be Glad, which borrows the title from verse 4, John Piper says this, he says, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. You get what he's saying? He's not saying don't go make disciples. He's saying make disciples so they worship God. Why does God want to make disciples of all the nations, so that all the nations might come to know him and worship him. Missions exists because worship doesn't. That's the primary purpose in missions and evangelism. It's not just 
that sinners might be saved. As important as that is, it's that God might be glorified in the salvation of sinners. And that's a big difference. When you approach it that way, it's going to change how you approach evangelism. It's going to change how you approach missions, and it should change how you approach worship, frankly. And getting it backwards has a lot of not-so-great effects. We make other things central. We tend to change things that shouldn't be changed. I think this shows the foolishness, even if it's well-meaning, of changing the worship of God in church to suit the preferences of unbelievers by modeling worship on modern entertainment in so many ways. If you think about it, what does it do? It puts the whole thing on its head. It reverses, it, it actually reverses the order of the priority of things from what they should be. It actually is a reversing of the focus that we should have in worshiping God. We don't change the worship of God and offer strange fire, so to speak, on God's altar in order to attract or win the lost. Rather, we are to try to, you know, attract and win the lost in order that they might know and worship God acceptably. And what does Hebrews 12 say? We are to worship God with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That is what we are seeking to draw others to do, to come to Christ by faith and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe because our God is still a consuming fire, just as he always has been. The shorter catechism, one of the teaching tools we use that I I looked at earlier in the service, the very first question, if you know any questions of, of the catechism, you probably know question one. And question one says, what is the chief end of man? Now, nobody says, we don't talk like that anymore, but what does chief end mean? It means main purpose. Why are you here? Why did God make us? What's the main reason God made us, and what does it say? Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The main reason we exist and the main reason that God has redeemed us in Christ is that we might glorify him and enjoy him. I think that's what this psalm is also reminding us of. The glory of God and his praise is to be central in everything. It's central in our prayers. It's central in our worship. It's even central in our missions and evangelism. If that's the goal, it changes everything. You know, being a pastor and, and you know, there's always, there's a lot of pressure on, on us and on, on all churches really. You know, we have to grow. We have to get bigger. You know, if you look at our bulletin, you see that there's financial pressure. Oh, if we don't get bigger, we're not going to have the finances to meet our needs. We won't have a missions budget. All these things. That's backwards. I, I hope you invite, if you're a member of this church, I hope you invite people to church. I know you do. I hope you share the gospel with your neighbors. Don't ever do it because the church needs something. Don't ever do it because we need something. Do it because they need something. Do it because you want them to come to know Christ and learn to praise God and worship Him acceptably. It's all, if God's praise and glory is the goal, it will change everything in how you do evangelism, or it should. When we pray for God's blessing upon us with that goal in mind, we can be sure that God hears us and that we have the things that we have asked of him. Well, notice one last thing. The psalm closes on a note of confidence in God's mercy. This a lot of praying, a lot of requests going on in, in this psalm. It even really it ends on a note of prophecy, doesn't it? May not may not jump off the page at you that way, but I think that's what it is. At the end of the psalm in verses six to seven, the psalmist, what does he do? He prays that the ends of the earth might come to know God and, and fear him. And then he, he, he looks forward by the, by faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit to the day when that's going to come to pass. Look at verses six through seven. It says, the earth 
has yielded its increase. You know, God has blessed. He has poured out his blessings. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, Hebrew is not my strong suit, but in the Hebrew, these things are actually in the past tense. Now, when the, when the writer said these things, had they happened yet? No, he's looking you know, down, down to the end of time and seeing God by faith pouring out his blessings and the ends of the earth fearing the Lord. And so this is what we might call a prophetic past tense. And so in light of this, I think the King James Version puts it a little bit better in rendering these things in the future tense. It's really the idea is that God is going to do these things. And the King James of verses 6 and 7 says, Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. You know, when you pray these things, when you pray, you know, we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, let thy kingdom come. You know, that's a prayer that's going to be answered. That's a prayer that's being answered even now as the gospel is preached and people come to faith in Jesus Christ. It will be answered on that last day as well. And so in verse, in verse one of the psalm, you and I are taught to pray for God's mercy and God's blessing. And in verses six and seven, we look by faith to the fulfillment of that promised blessing, for it is sure to come to pass. In verses two through five, we're taught to pray that all the nations, even all the earth, may come to know God's salvation through faith in Christ, so that they too might fear the Lord and know his blessing and the shining of God's face upon them. And then look at verse 7. We look by faith to the fulfillment of that promise and that request. All the ends of the earth, what? Shall fear him. The gospel of Christ has gone out to the ends of the earth. It is going to continue to go out to the ends of the earth that disciples will be made. Charles Spurgeon writes of this. He says, the prayer... The request, the prayer of the first verse is the song of the last verse. The thing that we're requesting in verse 1 is the thing that the psalmist praises God for by faith in the last verse. He already sees by faith the answer to his prayers being given. You know, God in the Old Testament back in Genesis 12 promised Abraham, Abram at the time, that he was going to bless all the nations through him. What does that tell you? The gospel has always been meant to go to all the nations. It was never intended to be restricted to one place, one people, one land, or one nation. From the very beginning, all the nations were going to be blessed through Abraham and his offspring. And God promised to make his offspring, Abraham's, what? As numerous as the stars in the heavens. Now go outside and look up, and if you can count the stars, so shall your offspring be and Abraham believed God, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Those promises to Abraham are being fulfilled now. And they will be fulfilled on that last day as well. They're being fulfilled now throughout this age, through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and disciples being made. And Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, tells us of the fulfillment of these things on the last day. What does it say? He says, in heaven there's going to be, quote, a great multitude that no one could number. And where are they from? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
That's the fulfillment of the prayer in Psalm 67, among other things. That is how sure a thing it's going to be. It's even written down for us in the last book of our Bibles that one day we're all going to be amazed how many people Christ saved by his mercy and grace. And what's the, what's the end result going to be on that day? It's right in the text. They're going to praise God and say salvation belongs to our God, not just God, our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a sure thing. And so your work in evangelism, the work of the church in the Great Commission and World Missions, is not wasted time and effort and money. It's a sure thing. Jesus will build his church. He is building his church, and the gates of hell can never prevail against it. So may the Lord Jesus Christ work in us and make us a praying church, make us praying people. May he, even as the prayer is in the psalm, may he greatly bless us that we might be a blessing to others in making his gospel known both here and in foreign missions. And may we do all these things for the glory of his great name, that the peoples, all the peoples and all the nations may learn to fear God and praise his name. Let's, let's pray.